looking at you. <laughs> we, um, we're really excited to um, get a chance to share our story here today. Um, Eric and I grew up in California, Southern California, and uh, raised most of our kids there in about six years ago. Oh, you said it was six years ago today. Eric started a job out here. He came out with two of our kids and uh, I stayed back for a couple months because our uh, youngest daughter was still playing volleyball and wanted to finish. And uh, three of our kids are here today. I'm going to give a shout out to Josh. Uh, he's he's uh, one that came up with Eric at that time. Isaac lives in St. George now. And then we've got Gabe and Levi, our two youngest, who are at Cedar High School. Can you guys just put your hands up? And So they're, they're here with us. So um, we're really excited to be with you, and I see some of our friends here that we came today to share, and um, I'm in Pastor Richard's, I live in, we live in Parowan, and I'm in Pastor Richard's uh, Thursday afternoon class. So um, Eric, you want to pray for us as we get started? Let's just take a moment. <clears throat> Gracious Lord, it is so exciting to have the opportunity to come before you and just get together as a community and a family of believers. And Lord, as, as we share our story today about our journey through the foster care system, I pray that you can use this story to expand your, your community here in Southern Utah. So Lord, we know you're here. We know that you are in this, and we humbly pray that you use this. And it's your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, I better get my glasses out because I need them for my notes. <clears throat> so as um, a pastor said, um, we are going, I'm going through the Bible study, the book <clears throat> Knowing God um, at the Bible study in Parowan, and um, when he said we were going to be doing that, I was so excited because I read that book when I was in college. It changed my life. And um, it's going to be woven through our story here today. <clears throat> Do we have the slides up there? All right. So God is always at work around us. And that was really apparent in my life. Um, as a little girl, I accepted the Lord, and I, I knew that he was always there with me. And I'm going to share a little bit about my story and some of the things that I went through as a, <clears throat> a child. But my mom was a really strong Christian. She was an RN at the City of Hope and had been in a second lieutenant in the Air Force and just an amazing mom. And she used to do uh, devotions with us at night before we went to bed and then she'd go to work because she worked the graveyard shift. And so those little visits was with God is what the book was called. Some of you might remember those. But uh, that had a huge impact on me as I was a little kid. And um, then uh, fast forward to when I was at Azusa Pacific University. Has anybody ever heard of that school? Southern California. So um, <clears throat> I lived in Glendora. That's where I grew up. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I ended up at Azusa Pacific Right around, uh, was in 1978, 78, 79. And that's um, through one of my instructors 
they had us read that book back then, and it had a profound effect on my life. I knew that God was always working. I felt him always around me, always doing something. I felt his presence. And it was um, during that time, um, one of my coaches, he um, encouraged us to all pick a life verse. And so my life verse was Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And because of a lot of things I had gone through in my life, trust was a real issue with me. And it was something that God has been working in my life throughout. And um, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit too. Then I met, um, when I was at Azusa, I re-met Eric. We met when we were um, at going to a church when I was 12 or 13. He was a couple years older than me. We were teenagers, thought he was so cute. And I think we, at first time we were uh, doing a car wash, raising money for our youth group. And then his family moved, um, and uh, our family started going to a church in Laverne, and his family moved back up to Laverne. And so they started going to church there, and I was involved with a youth group there, and Eric got involved with the youth group. I don't know if it's because he saw me and he said, I want get to in, get involved and get to know her better, but our first date was... Of course, it had something to do with kids because we were taking the junior high and high school kids up to the mountains for a retreat, and we volunteered to go shopping for uh, the groceries for that. And so that was our first date, and uh, we were real involved with the kids. We've always been involved with kids, and you're going to hear that. But <clears throat> we got um, right after I graduated from Azusa Pacific, we got married in 1983. And we picked a verse um, because we really wanted God to be leading our life um, as we started our life as a married couple. And so our life verse was uh, Philippians 2, 2 through 4. Make my joy complete by being of sound mind, like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambitions ambition or I'm having a hard time reading my I don't have the Bible I have my words or vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourself each of you should look at only not look only to your own (coughs) interests but also to the interests of others your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ so as we look back at our um, uh, life verse and our uh, anniversaries coming up next next month. We always look back at that verse and see how God has interwoven that in the ministry that He's called us into, and also my life verse, um, trusting in Him no matter what, asking Him to make your path straight. So God is always working in us. He's always working around us, and one of the ways that He does that, He speaks to us through His Word. He speaks to us also through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the the um, circumstances we go through and of course his body and uh, so I was aware of that early on in my life and uh, praise God for his word right God is always pursuing a continual love relationship with us it's real and it's personal he's more interested in a love relationship with us than anything else 
I know that you guys are, are I think, the same place we are in our uh, in the knowing God, and that is one of the key, the very first chapter we're talking about, and that is the most important thing. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, to love me with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and that is something that he's always wanting us to do, and it was something that he was making really clear to me throughout my life as a little girl, and then also um, in my relationships, and always using scripture to also bring about my relationship with him and helping me understand. And so, um, as God was pursuing me and I was trying to pursue him, I saw him in relationships. And uh, um, I grew up in a home where my dad had a lot of um, issues that he, he was actually diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And he was pretty abusive. Um, he, uh, it was, it was hard. There was times when he, a couple times he tried killing, he did try killing himself. He ended up in a hospital. Um, our house was chaotic and it was always really scary at night because my mom went to work. City of Hope, she was the one that was really supporting us and taking care of us. And we would be left home with our, my dad. And he also had a real drinking problem too. So was really hard times. Um, my brothers and I got really close. My sisters too, they were a little bit older. I had two younger brothers. And I, I felt like I was kind of um, a protector of them. And uh, um, But it was that relationship where God brought another verse to my heart, which was um, later on in my life where he was talking, Joseph was talking to his brothers in Genesis fifty twenty. What you intended to harm me, but God used it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so I think I jumped ahead, but I want to, the last slide, it said something about Billy's story. And that, um, that young man who was only about 10 years old um, was one of my students when I was teaching at Redlands Unified School District. I was a PE enrichment teacher. And God used this young man, and I still today, I don't know, was he really a, a boy or was he an angel? Because shortly after this encounter with him, our school went off track, and uh, that meant we were on teach, working for three months, and then we had a month off year-round school. And when I came back, Billy was, he wasn't at the school anymore. But it was my practice as a teacher... Um, I had the best job in the world. I get to go outside and play with the kids. And uh, so we were out there, you know, at the end of class, I would always give out good sportsman coupons. And I'd write the kid's name down, and I'd hand them maybe two or three kids. And at the end of the month, their name would go in a a drawing, and I would pull out a couple names. And I had worked out with some of the uh, skating rink there and a baseball um, minor league team to give me tickets to give to the kids so they could go do something. It would be a big deal kind of encouraged them to be good sports for me. So I pulled out Billy's name, and I gave it to him and a couple other kids. And uh, then I dismissed the class to go. And the kids left, and Billy stayed. And he said, Mrs. Hasmeyer, can I talk to you? And, uh, yeah, what's going on? He said, "Um, I want to just give you the coupon, the skating ticket back, because I can't use it. So why don't you just give it to somebody else? And he was getting real emotional. 
And I said, how come you can't use it? Your mom or your dad can't take you? You don't have somebody that can take you? And he said, no. Um, Recently, my mom went into prison, and I don't know where my dad is. And I was placed in a group home. And uh, we don't get to do those things. He started crying. He handed it back, and he walked away. So after school, I went and talked to his teacher, and I found out there was three different group homes. They each had six boys in them, and they were sending their kids to school every day. And the reality is those kids might have been woken up that day by a stranger, somebody that took the shift. And uh, here they were little kids, and they weren't living in with family. They were living in uh, group homes. And I just thought, how could this be? This is America. Where's the church? I mean, all my life I had read about how God was a father to the fatherless, and he was a defender of the orphan, and and he cared about kids. And we we knew that as Christians that, that we're supposed to care too, so I'm thinking, where's the church? And uh, so here now I know. <clears throat> I know about this, and, and uh, it broke my heart. So I went home and I shared it with Eric, and I said, this isn't right. We had three kids at the time. Um, they were six, seven, and eight or nine, I, I think. And uh, Eric and I started talking. We, I had had three C-sections with the kids, and um, doctors told me we couldn't have any more kids. We shouldn't. And so we wanted maybe one or two more, so we started talking and praying and started talking and praying with our kids. And we really saw that God was telling us that this is something he wanted us to step into. And I went back to that book that I read back in college and understanding that as you're trying to figure out what God's will is in your life and you're praying, he's speaking to you. And to me, that encounter with Billy was like, you guys remember Kmart and the blue light specials? You'd be shopping there, and uh, my kids don't know what I'm talking about. They probably don't remember. But the light would go on, and they would be, and they'd get your attention, and everyone would get all excited about that. That encounter with him was like a blue light special to me. God was, this big light was going on, and he was saying, I'm calling you to this. And Eric, right away, yeah, I, I think this is something we need to be doing. We had been praying for maybe one or two little more girls, and so we thought this is, this is how we're going to add to our family. And so um, we began the process of getting uh, licensed. And <clears throat> so that's when um, it takes about a year to get licensed. And uh, at that time, um, we were living in Grand Terrace, and we knew, we knew that if we were going to be bringing in more kids, we needed to move. So we moved to um, a bigger house on a, about an acre property in um, the Woodcrest area of Riverside. And we had our, had our house licensed in Grand Terrace. And as we moved to um, this new home, we had to have it relicensed. So there was a, a downtime there. While we were waiting for that to get done, we couldn't have kids placed. All of our classes were done. And so we're waiting for that. And it was a time when God had to do some things in my life with my trust issues and get me ready. (sighs) So there was another encounter I had with a couple students that was really, really difficult. 
He uses our circumstances, doesn't he, to get our attention? A lot of times it's fun and good, and sometimes it's really hard. Uh, so when I, as a teacher, I taught K through 6, so I really had a chance to get to know the kids. Um, I loved my students so much. Sometimes Eric and I and our kids would take some kids to baseball game or do some things with them because this time I was working at a school. It was Redlands Unified School District, but it was in San Bernardino. And uh, very poor area, a lot of immigrants. A lot of the parents didn't speak English. And uh, I think we had something like 32 different languages spoken at our little school. So I remember the day, day before this happened, I was doing a unit teaching baseball, softball, and I had been teaching the kids how to hit the ball and play the game. And a lot, these kids never even been to baseball games. That's why we, we would take them. Um, and I was working specifically with these two brothers, this class. I just loved them. I had had them since they were little. They were fifth and sixth graders. Their names were Daniel and David. And um, the next day, um, they weren't in class, and they never were um, absent. And so I just thought that was weird. We went, you know, did our day. And the, later on after school, we had a couple detectives come into the office, into the teacher's lounge. They needed to talk to us. And uh, they had pictures of students. Um, there had The night before, there had been a home invasion robbery. Um, this was a Vietnamese family. And uh, a Vietnamese gang heard that they had money in the house. So they had a friend of the family knock on the door. Her mom was friends with the girl that knocked on the door. And they let him in, and they tried to find where that money was. And they tortured all the, the family. They had him tied up, and um, the police found him. They had been executed. And so they were coming to try to identify who the kids were. They had a sister that was in junior high. The little three-year-old brother who actually survived. And when the mom's friend, he um, called to talk with her. He's the one that answered the door and said his mommy wouldn't wake up. And so that put me into a tailspin. Here we were in the process of getting ready to take in some kids, add to our home, which it's, it's a huge, you know, raising kids is probably the hardest job in the world. And raising kids that have been neglected and abused by the very people that should have loved them is is a different kind of hard it's it's wonderful but it's it's not easy so god was preparing me to trust him and um i remember we had gone off track and i was just having a hard i was i was crying all the time i i was having a hard time i asking god how did you allow this as a mom, I would never let anybody hurt my kids. I, if I was all-powerful and all-knowing, I would make sure that nothing like this happened. I, I didn't understand it. And uh, then they had the funeral, and I remember them bringing all the caskets were open for the whole family, and little David's was shut. And I thought, I didn't go up there, but I thought, why was he so hurt that they couldn't even have his casket open? They didn't have him ready when the funeral started, so they started carrying his body down and put him into his casket, and I just, I lost it. And I was mad at God. I didn't understand why, and I thought, how can I trust you? 
And so I went through this journaling for a couple days and praying and going back and forth and just, God, where were you? Where were you? Why weren't you there? How would you allow this to happen to those sweet little boys? And I remember God telling me, I was there with them. You don't know. You don't know when they're with me now. There's things you're not going to understand, but you've got to trust me. And I just read this last week when we did this um, part in Knowing God. I didn't know that I got this from that book, but it was when, when the lady was telling Carrie's story about having having cancer and how she she said this. And this is what I thought. I, I thought God told me this, but it was through Carrie. I was determined that no matter what my circumstances, I would never look at my situation except against the backdrop of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I needed to be able to handle, I needed to be able to get to a place. If if I was going to move in to this next realm of my life where we were going to be taking in these, these kids that some of them, one of them went through a carjacking and a kidnapping. Um... One was locked in a washing machine. We found out after he came. A bunch of our kids were very abused, sexually abused. Um, uh, one of our sons, his mother OD'd on heroin. And as a baby, he was, they had to do a C-section two months early to get him out. And he almost didn't make that a flight, flight him over to uh, Loma Linda. Two of our boys had health issues because they're, their moms didn't take the right medication. So we had these really difficult things that we were going to be dealing with, and God needed me to get to a place where I was going to trust him. And I was able to go back to that, my life verse, and, and Eric's and my marriage verse every single time. And God was using people in my life also to speak into it. He was very, when I was in junior high, I had a teacher that became like a father to me, and he told me if I got really good grades, he and his wife were going to take me and one of my friends to a beautiful lake in Utah called Panguitch. So I started going there since I was a little kid, and I still love. It's one of the reasons we moved out here, because we knew this area and we loved it. We knew it would be a safe place for our kids. And then Terry Franson, who was my track coach, he was the one that um, told us, you need to have a life verse. You need to have something that you can get, get back with God. And he was always saying to us, walk your talk, walk your talk. If you call yourself a Christian, you have a responsibility to act like one. Don't say if you're, you're going to be a Christian and don't live like, and you don't live like that. Look at who Christ is and, and follow him. How am I doing on time, Eric? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Okay. See, I get so excited about this. I can. Do, there's a million stories. You guys are just getting the little tiny Reader's Digest version. You can imagine with all these kids. So anyway, we had over 30 kids placed in our home. Some of them would be, I was an emergency, we were emergency foster family. And sometimes they would come for just a weekend until they could find relatives to, to take them in. Sometimes they would come for... A couple years, one of our first placements, which was um, two girls. It was the two girls that we were praying for. We, we um, found out after they came that they had a little brother they hadn't seen since they had been placed. He was only, he was less than a year old. 
And so we talked to the social workers. We were able to get him. So we went from three to six, like, within two weeks. And um, we were in the process of adopting all three of them, and then they found out who the little boy's father was. He didn't even know he had a son. The mom had put <clears throat> her current boyfriend on the uh, birth certificate, and she was, she was in prison at the time, and so that's why the, she back and forth, back and forth, these kids had been passed all over. And um, so we ended up getting little Devin, and uh, we're in the process of adopting, and when he was three, the dad decided he wanted him to... To Devin, Eric and I were his parents. He didn't remember by that time who, what his life was before, really. And I remember him when his dad would come to visit, running through the house, locking the doors, because he didn't want that guy to come in. And we used uh, two words in our house, S words that the kids weren't supposed to say, was stupid and shut up. So Devin would say when he got mad, stupid and shut up, when, when he had to go on visits. And... He went a couple times, and then the judge placed him in that home. And so um, it was devastating to our family. It was devastating to our kids. They came to get him, and um, they had to pry him out of my arms as he's screaming, Mommy, Mommy. And I remember Eric and I, we made our kids go to school because we didn't want to be there when they took him. And I remember his little face peering up against the window as the car was driving away, screaming, because he wanted to be with his mom and dad. He's um, like 27 now, and we've heard from his sister that he's doing okay. Um, that was traumatic for all of us, and it was traumatic for him. For him. So as you think of these kids, you know, this kind of stuff happens. Just if, if God reminds you of the story, pray for them, and pray for the foster families that go through that. <clears throat> Let me look at my notes here real quick. So um, so we ended up do- adopting 10 kids. Our commitment was we were going to take older kids. We were going to take sibling sets. We already had our babies. So we were going to take kids that were harder to place. And uh, biracial kids too. So we have kind of the United Nations. We have black, white, half black, half white, all black half Hispanic, you know, pretty cool. And then our sons married girls from different um, backgrounds too. So we kind of, we're going to have all kinds of um, DNA when we, with grandkids. Um, we have two more, we have eight right now. We have one coming next month and one coming in May. Um, we also took in some uh, aged-out foster kids, and Eric's going to talk, I think, a little bit about that. But uh, we had a trailer in our yard, and uh, we took in uh, a boy, 18. Um, he was in high school with our oldest daughter. And the church we were going to, um, we were doing a 30 days of prayer at that church for foster kids. CPS, it's a government agency, but somehow they were working with our church and they allowed us to put together a calendar. They gave us the picture and a bio information about 30 kids. We put it on this calendar, gave it to the church. Our church made a commitment every uh, year, either in April or May, because that's child abuse awareness or foster, aware, aware, uh, foster care awareness, that they would um, speak and, and do a whole church service um, on uh, foster and adoption. 
And so um, we were praying for that day for aged out kids. About five minutes later, my phone rang. We were not going to take any more. We had taken in Gabe and Isaac. They were going to be our last. And uh, it was a social worker that went to our church. I didn't know her very well. And she said, there's this boy that turned 18 and his foster parents kicked him out. He's living out of a car and he's working. He's not going to school anymore. Nobody's going to help him. Would you guys consider it? So I made a call to Eric and I said, Eric, what do you think? He said, let's look into it. And so we took in Jesse, helped him get through school. We had him quit work because he was way behind. We said, no, we're going to take care of you. You're going to finished school and he graduated. We were there for his graduation. Then we found out he had a 15-year-old sister living in that same home. They lived in a very wealthy area in Orangecrest, Riverside. We found out that they were taking in kids and using them to make money and also making them work. They would have to give all the money to the um, foster parents or they would have them sit in front of a grocery store and say that they were raising money for a soccer team. They didn't get to play soccer. They didn't get to do any of that kind of stuff, that money. And the worst part is they were abusing these kids. And so Jesse told us about this girl that was being abused. Her name was Elle. And uh, <clears throat> we were uh, mandated reporters. We had to report it. So um, we did. And the police came to the school. And Elle called Jesse and said, I can't tell because if I, go, I do, I get home, I'm going to get beat up. And they're not going to take me. And uh, so Jesse called Eric and, and said, I need dad. I need your help. I need your help. He went down. He was a um, therapist at the time. And he went down to the school, was talking to the police. And they didn't want to believe because a lot of times they don't believe the kids. And uh, so then they told Eric, well, we'll let her, we'll keep her out for a week and do this investigation if you guys will take her. And so Elle ended up. Um, coming to our house, and we ended up adopting her when she was just out of high school, 17. She was our oldest adopted. So God was using us in amazing ways. He was working through um, our church. We had chances to go to other churches. We had a chance to go um, to the White House and talk with senators. We were supposed to meet the president while we were there, but there was a crisis, and that didn't happen. But we met a lot of senators in Congress. There was two foster families from every state that got invited and so we were the ones one of the ones from California and it was a time where we got to help change some laws that if a foster child at least in in uh, our area if they were in a home and they became available for adoption that home got first choice because we had families that we had been um, mentoring and speaking into that had two kids and they were now adoptable, so they were going to give them to another family. They had them for like two years. How, how can you do that? And so through our ministry, um, we were at a big church. There was about 50 of our, well, I don't know if it's 50, about 20 of our friends came to us and they said, we, know, we really are really excited about what you guys are doing and we want to do the same thing. And through that, I think about 100 kids from our church were adopted into families. And so God was doing something amazing. As I'm sharing this, this is God's story that he allowed us to be a part of because we decided we wanted to be actively involved with where he was working. And he was working in the lives of children, especially foster children. 
um, some other things that happened that God was doing. He, um, we started a walk. It was called the Walk Your Talk Walk. We used that because of what T- Coach Franson had taught me. You call yourself a Christian, you need to act like one. Walk your talk. We sat around the dinner table one night with the, our older kids, and we said, guys, we can't adopt every kid. What do we got? We've got to come up with another uh, you know, idea. What is God doing? He's already bringing these families to us. We need to get the word out. It needs to be bigger. And so we, we started this walk. We asked the, um, our pastor, could we do it at the church? And he said, you bet. And so it, the first time it was like 30 people. Most of them were our friends and family. And it grew to be thousands. It got so big that we ended up moving it over to Cal Baptist. They got all involved with it. And it got bigger there, and we moved it over to the Tyler Mall. And what we did with it was we tried to, um, uh, the, whole, the whole purpose was to educate people, to say, this is what's going on. Eric's going to talk about the statistics. And we, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. What can you do? That was kind of our tagline. So we started a nonprofit. It was called Factor. Foster Advocates Caring Together of Riverside. Be a factor. And um, this is the, the flag that we had. We had... We had no money to do this. I would go to people in the church and say, would you give money for T-shirts? Would you give money for a flag? It was all, everything was given. This is our oldest son, Stevie, and our youngest son, Levi. He's about 6'1 now, but he was a tiny little guy then. The blue is foster care, uh, child abuse awareness and foster care awareness. That's the ribbon right there. Factor, um, the son is Jesus. They're walking to Jesus. They're walking to a new day, a better life. So that's what it's about. So we gave those out. They, we had banners all up and down streets in Riverside um, telling about our walk. And uh, we got real connected with the mayor and congressmen. And they actually turned the city blue because we wanted May and April to be like pink is for cancer awareness breast cancer awareness. And so we were, God was doing all these amazing things. I'm almost done. I'm going to hand it over to Eric here in just a minute. After we did our first walk, the um, Press Enterprise came and did a story. It was, you know, we, we were nothing. It was, I remember somebody calling me and saying, we did something and we didn't get anything in the paper. But God was doing something. And so through that, then there was a magazine in Riverside. Um, do you remember what that magazine's called? I don't know. But they did a story. They came out and did a story on our family. And then the next thing is Parents Magazine is calling us. And they said, we heard about your family. We saw something. We want to do a story on you. So they came out and uh, took pictures and did a story. And then uh, the Today Show found out. And so then they wanted to do a story. They, they, I think we're just going to, and then they decided they wanted to interview us and they wanted to have as many families as were, could from our church in our neighborhood that were doing this to come to. And we, we got to be, go on the Anderson Cooper show. I don't know if Eric's going to talk about that, but he got a call one Saturday. And on Monday morning, we've got 17 of us flying, our kids and Eric and I, and one son was married. Out to New York, they paid for us to go, and we were on the um, Anderson Cooper show, and then uh, Steve Harvey show later on for uh, a Mother of the Year thing. 
And so God was doing this amazing work where he was getting this message out. When God calls you to do something, if, if it's God working, it's going to be big and it's going to happen and it's amazing. And Eric and I still look back and say, is this our life? This is crazy. So um, anyway, so we have the, the clip from the Today Show. And we'd like to show that right now. And then Eric's going to tell his part of the story.
All I got to say is you haven't lived until you've come home at 3 o'clock in the morning from Iron Man 2, midnight showing, seeing a television truck out in front of your house. Not that that happened, but my story is just a little bit different from Jackie's. My parents, my dad was not a Christian when he met my mom. Matter of fact, the only reason he met my mom is that he went to a church camp with a friend because there were some cute chicks there. And that's where he met this woman that would become his wife. And so because of that, because of him not knowing Christ at the time of their marriage, he came to Christ because of that relationship. And what I got to see with them over that 66 years worth of relationship that they have was that commitment that they made to family. My dad would use his vacation time to go on Boy Scout trips. Now, if you haven't been with Boy Scouts on a 50-mile backpacking trip in the summer when you'd much rather spend the time with your wife, you know, that that's a, was a tremendous sacrifice. Because if you've used, worked with any type of 12 to 15-year-olds, we were all squirrels. We were part of the natural wildlife at that point. And we... But, but my dad did that, and that was one of the things that he, he modeled for me over, the, over that period was the commitment that a dad makes to his kids. When my dad said something, you knew it was going to happen. When he said, I'll be there to pick you up, he was there to pick you up. When he said, you better watch out, you made sure you watched out. He was bigger than life until he finally died back in October of 2020. And my mom followed him six months later in April of 2021. Tremendous role models. And so we started to prepare this journey that we were going to take to have foster children. And I can remember this like it was yesterday. We had gotten our first two placements in the beginning of, of November of 1997. And I was, worked for a company called Home Savings of America at the time, and they were going through the buyout process from Washington Mutual. And it was late November. I had just been severed out. I was pretty ticked. And it was a Sunday night. And I had just gone over the edge. I had needed to take a break, and I went for a drive, and I came back. And I was ready to say, it's time for them to go. Got to go. And then I could feel God grabbing me by the ears and shaking me. What are you doing? This is what you're supposed to do. You don't do this. There's going to be, watch out. And so, instead of coming back and saying, okay, they got to go, I kind of had to figure out how to get them to stay. And because of that, we, uh, we continued to, to, to work and continue to grow. As Jackie shared, we, we started a support group once we got into 
uh, working with foster families. We had a support group at our house, and Jackie and I were talking one night, and we said, you know what? Somebody should have some kind of background, kind of a therapeutic background to help some of these parents get through this. And I said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I went, oh, okay. Because, see, I was, I was a stockbroker. I was in finance. I, I dealt with numbers. I, that's what I did. But then God said, that's what you used to do. It's time for you to go back to school. So in August of 2002, I went back to California Baptist University. And after two years, I graduated with my master's degree in counseling psychology. And that's what I've done since 2004. There's several times when I've tried to get away from working with kids because really nobody goes into therapy to work with kids. They go to do with adults because why? Adults have adult issues. You can work with adults. God said, no, guess what you're going to do? You're going to open up a clinic with, a, with your best friend and guess what you're going to be working with? Foster kids. That's your calling. So I, we did that, and we did that for several years and didn't make any money, but we worked with a lot of kids. And then I went to drug rehab. Not as a patient. <laughs> it was my, my six-month time in rehab as the clinical director of a rehab facility. And then God said, nope, you got to work with kids. And so I... Moved up When we moved up here to southern Utah, I moved up here and I started to work with kids, with children and adolescents. And it was amazing how this old guy could get these young kids to interact and to talk and to work through some of the things that are going on. So these are the major adjustments that we had to make and that I had to make in my life. And then finally, when you can come to know God by experience, as you obey him and you accomplish his work, he accomplishes his work through you. I'm a number guy. I've always been a number guy. Jackie's amazed because she'll say, well, I go, well, this happened on this date. Like today is our six-year six anniversary here. She wouldn't know that. I do. I've got some statistics for you. As of 2020, that year, there were 213,000 children that entered foster care in the United States. In 2020, the last year for these statistics, 407,000 children were in foster care in the United States. Approximately one-third of those 407,000 children had up to two placements that year. Two. What does that mean? That means they go get the hefty bag because these kids don't have luggage. They throw all of their worldly possessions into the trash bag, put it into the social worker's car, and they schlep it to another house. I spent the last four years over at Cedar High School. And this is what I know, and I've had to, 
I had to fight this over and over again. Every time a child moves placement, they change schools, they lose six months' worth of education. That means one-third of those kids lost an entire year of education in 2020. 23,000 children age out of the foster care system each year. It's a lot of kids. Let me ask you a question. When you turned 18, did you go, oh, man, I'm going to be an adult? Going to be the A word? (laughs) You go, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm going to be responsible. These kids, when they turn 18, they're going, I, I, no. I don't want my 18th birthday. Because when I get my 18th birthday, they don't even give me the hefty bag. I go. I'm no longer in that home. Because the state no longer supplies the ability and the money to maintain these kids in the home. And because of that, of that 23,000, 20% of them become homeless instantly on their 18th birthday. Less than 3% get their college degree by the time they turn the age of 26. Less than 50% find gainful employment by the time they're the age 24. 70% of the females, 70% of the females are pregnant by the age of 21. 60%, 60% of the young women that age out, that don't have a family, end up in sex trafficking. 25% of those young people are dealing with PTSD. It's real. I've sat down with kids that tell me about the dreams and the nightmares that they have. The fear that they have when they walk into a room like this and they're looking to make sure that there's exits. They look around, they sit away from people because they want to be safe. 25% of those 23,000 will be incarcerated within two years. If you want to make a difference in substance abuse, if you want to make a difference in homelessness, if you want to make a difference in the prison population, if you want to make a difference in the mental health of young people, you get involved in fostering. I would get kids that would be 17, and the parents would bring them in, we'd be working, and I'm thinking, you know what? We should have started this 10 years ago. Because then we would have a chance to be extremely effective. But right now we're working through a lot of stuff. So we have this eternal impact. The last thing that somebody says before they go to heaven is significant. Would you agree? The last thing that I, my dad said to me was significant. 
what, did, what was the last thing that Jesus said to, his, to those that watched him go up? To what? Make disciples. He didn't say go, go build. He didn't say go. He said make disciples. And that's what we're talking about with the church. Because see, right now, there's 314,000 evangelical congregations in the United States. Some of them are big mega churches. Some of them are little house churches. But there's 314,000 meeting today. Do you think if each one of those congregations took one, that there would be a significant impact on the foster children in the, in the United States? Just one. We're not asking you to go adopt ten. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> but we're asking the congregation, just take responsibility for one. And see, that's what James 1.27 says. Pure and undefiled religion And the Greek word in that word religion is not this, you know, it's worship. What is your worship? What is your worship that you give each day to a holy God? Because, see, he he says, this is what I like, taking care of of the orphans and the widows. And the orphans today are these kids in foster care. Do we listen? Do we listen to James 1.27? And we just go, that doesn't apply. We've got, what, about 120 people here today? How do you get involved? What do I do? Well, don't adopt 10. If you want to, come and see us. We'll be more than happy to to share, but there's a billboard right down Old Highway 91, utahcasa.org. See, each foster child can have what they call a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate. Go to that website. That'll tell you how to get involved. Wouldn't it be great if there were 20 people that went to Child Protective Services on Monday morning at 9 o'clock, right behind Lynn's, and said, hey, we're here, what can we do? They, they would go, whoa, what's going on? Wouldn't it be great if you got trained in respite and were able to give those foster parents that are really being rid hard the opportunity to get away. Because, see, in order for Jackie and I to go somewhere, we had to have a person that had been vetted by the state in order for us to be able to hire a babysitter. And one time, we went out to dinner And because this person had been vetted by the state, she had volunteered, charged us $80 to watch our kids. 
Then the Grove, our, our church, decided we're going to step in. We're going to get some of our people vetted because everybody that works with children needs to go through a finger, fingerprint process. And we're going to, once a month, supply child care. We're going to feed kids pizza. And we're going to supply child care so the parents can get out for two hours and actually be like adult humans for a bit. That's opportunities. Once you plug into what God is doing, the opportunities are boundless. My encouragement is to look where God is working and then go get involved there. And I believe that his heart is with the foster children in the United States. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father.